It's the Cavaliers Basketball Club Podcast. It's basketball time in the queue. It's over! It's over! The 52 year drought is over! The Cavaliers have won the NBA Championship! Cleveland! This is for you! Mitchell goes to the basket and buries Cornette! Garland high steps over the timeline, stumps on a dime, hits the three! Darius Garland has been unreal here in the fourth quarter. Jack clock down to five. Lillard blocked by Mobley! The shoot around. Welcome back to the club. The Cavs came back with a vengeance against the Knicks in game two with a 107 to 90 beatdown. Frankly, the final score didn't accurately reflect just how handedly the Cavaliers beat them, being up by more than 25 at one point. Unfortunately, we were unable to fully review that game before last night's debacle, a 99 to 79 game three loss at New York. It was the first time a team was held to under 80 all year. And that was certainly not something we expected to see from a team with talent like this. Colin, time has a way of humbling us all, but how are you feeling about our chances now? Adam, I think the entire organization was humbled last night. Even the equipment person who just holds the water. I know that I was completely baffled by some of the decision making and lack of execution on the offensive side of the ball. I'm hopeful the team will show up for game four. They kind of have to. But let's move on and break down more of our thoughts. We're thrilled that you were listening to our podcast. And instead of an ad about who to bet on and why, we would like to invite you to subscribe to Apple Podcasts and Spotify to keep following our show. And if you're seeing this on YouTube, please like and subscribe. We appreciate the support. And we need monetization. (laughs) In the episode that we did with the Junkyard Pod... Jackson said that Lamar would only get minutes if the team was awful, and the team was pretty awful last night. But he still only got garbage time minutes. Did you expect to see Lamar out there sooner with how lackluster everybody was on the floor? Yes. (laughs) I always love answering things quickly like that. Um, No, that was a shock. Uh, Mostly because you and I are Lamar stands, like you've mentioned in the past, and we really see a value to the energy that he brings to the court and the effort that he, um, that we know that he would give, uh, just cause the guy's excited to be in the league, you know, like, um, mm-hmm. and that's infectious. The fact that he didn't see any time in a game that really everyone that got to get out there struggled handedly. Um, I think that, bodes kind of bad for Lamar's chances for the rest of the year and in some ways it just kind of game two made me feel better about JB's decision making when it comes to rotations game three made me worried all over again Mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. um and the idea that he wouldn't look to someone like Lamar in a game that is all about defense and you're struggling to get a bucket that's I'm I'm not sure what to, I'm not sure what to say beyond that. So what do you think? Yeah, I can understand the instinct of not playing Lamar on some level because the offense was so bad, 
you could see where, oh, Lamar's not the best offensive talent on the team. But to your point, nobody was getting buckets off the bench. Nobody was producing anything. One thing that Lamar does pretty well is he can get to the basket and drive the lane if you're able to open that up a little bit. And I would have liked to see that. I would have liked to see them go to the basket with some more physicality. I know that Darius was trying that, and I know that Donovan was trying that, but not really anyone else was. Uh, you know, Lavert tried a little bit, but Lamar is bigger than all three of those guys. So it would have been nice to see maybe the coaching staff taking Lamar aside and saying, just play downhill. What You're going to get five minutes. Play downhill the entire time and see what happens so we could maybe crack the the front court of the Knicks who had a really solid game and were frustrating everybody on the Cavs side. And again, to your point, it kind of makes me a little concerned now about JB's communication with the rest of the players. Colin, I think we were all really positive on the Cavs going into game three, but obviously things didn't work out. Do you think this loss was more on the players not showing up or the coaches not preparing them? So this game was completely dreadful, and I think it was dreadful because the, the entire organization was not ready for what was going to happen to them against the Knicks. I think that the players clearly uh, struggled. Darius, we know, struggled for sure. But I also think that the coaching staff blinked in how they prepared the team for this game because I know that this is a really young team and I know that they need to have their feet under them and that nothing like this will prepare them unless you live in that moment, right? We, You know that there are some experiences with such a young team that you're just going to have to live it and deal with it. But I think that the coaching staff blinked in the sense of they brought in Ricky Rubio as one of the first substitutions because of his quote-unquote veteran experience. And you and I, I think, have always really liked the Rubio signing, but this was an instance where I thought we were done with this. Rubio immediately came in and fouled one of the Knicks players. So looked like he wasn't ready for this experience either. And I know that Rubio is a veteran, but he's not a veteran in the playoff sense. He's had less playoff minutes than a lot of, you know, obviously Danny Green. I think he's even had less playoff minutes than Donovan Mitchell. So I felt like the, the team overall should just forget that this game ever happened on some level because the players didn't perform well. But I think that the coaching staff did a disservice in preparing and trusting that some of these players needed to live in the moment and get through it. And instead, they tried to have kind of a band-aid of, oh, well, let's make sure we have some veteran presence. Let's go back to what didn't work in game one. And that was frustrating because you won game two because you recalibrated for it. And instead, mm -hmm. you reverted back. And you as a coach, I'm not a coach, but I would assume as a coach, you would want to show your players how to move forward in a series like this. And I would think if I was like Isaac Okoro 
or other players, I would be a little baffled by, oh, all of a sudden we're just going to play a guy who we know can't stay in front of anyone defensively and has not played well offensively since he came back uh, this season from a second ACL tear. So it was both the players and the coaches, but I would probably put more of an onus on the coaching staff not preparing and trusting their instincts in getting these players prepared. Yeah, it's tough because I think a lot of the conversations that we hear, um, it's it's a back and forth of whether or not these the coaches really have much of an effect out there once the game starts. That... Um, they can game plan, certainly, prior, and that's a big help. And the things that they teach them in practice and throughout the year are a big help. But once the whistle blows, it's really up to them to execute all of that. And uh, so it's hard for me to blame coaches um, once the game begins. Uh, do you think the, Where I focus on coaching blame is more of the little things that we talk about, like rotations and minutes on certain guys and mm-hmm. matchups and all of that. That's, that's up to them. But... The players um, have to go out there and execute. It just seemed like top to bottom, nobody did. So I, I, I probably do agree with you that it was a, it was a both thing. That um, the coaches were not prepared to step up to that kind of a blowout or that being in a situation where really our offense just didn't show up that night. And um, I don't think that they had really a second idea of what to do um, when that happened. Um, even though we're the best defensive team in the league, um, the Knicks ended up looking better than us defensively throughout the night. And, you know, this is just a tough one. I mean, we write these questions, but um, it is a hard one to figure out how to answer because looking at the stats mm-hmm. of the game, it's kind of a shock that we lost by 20 points. Um, watching the game, you know why. Uh, statistically, mm-hmm. though, we're, we're pretty close to them. I mean, they were 39 of 83 when we were 31 of 80. So that's just eight shots made differently, and they made three more threes than we did, even though we were two of 19 in the first half, which is just... Uh, we've talked about this before. We can't be successful in this league um, shooting that way from, from three, and really one of the reasons why we shot out of the gate at the start of the year was because we were shooting above 40% as a team from three. And we knew that we would stop doing that. But the fact that now we're, we're dropped below 25% for the game, um, that can't happen. So uh, some of this is about execution and expectation of where you're supposed to be at this point in the season. And it's very disappointing to see them come out and play a game as if they are just starting the year, not ending the year. Statistically, the thing that points out to me the most that hurts are the 20 turnovers. I don't think that we would have seen the Knicks score 99 points if it wasn't for that. Mm -hmm. I think it would have been, you know, 86 to 79 or something like that because the the game was pretty awful on both sides when it came to the offense. And the only reason why the Knicks scored as many points as they did is because they got some great looks on the turnovers. So the Cavs have to figure out a way to be better with protecting the ball. And if that means slowing down the game down a little bit and, and getting a chance to, to take a breath, um, 
I think that's part of the reason why we always get nervous when we see Karis out there a lot because <laughs> yeah. Karis doesn't slow anything down. And last yeah. night he did more of that. And I think that would be the last thing that I'll, I'll point out and, and pitch it back to you is that the major blame I would put on the coaches for this game is starting Karis Levert. Mm -hmm. I don't think he should start for this team ever. I think he should be a sixth man off the bench. And that's that. I, d I just don't see any reason why he should come into the game and both mess up the flow of, of their rhythm to start and his rhythm to start because there's not enough mm. ball to go around for him in the at the top of the game. It would be better for him to come in when the other guys are resting and let him start to get a feel for for what he's going to do throughout the, the night. So what do you think? I mean, did you think that that was a, a smart move to start Karis LeVert? I know they're struggling with whether or not to use a Kuro, but this goes back to our Lamar Stevens comment. Like, there's other people on the team. My understanding with Karis is that he likes to come off the bench, that he's had a conversation with the coaching staff before, and that when he was starting at the beginning of the year, there was a shift in the belief, the idea of you know, putting him back on the bench because he likes being that sixth or seventh man role. So that's what you go with. In game two, he still played over 30 minutes, I believe, I and mean, he played a ton of minutes. So you can still have him play a lot, but coming off the bench, I think, does help him. I think that you're right with that. And I think that it goes back to what I was talking about with Rubio, where the, to me, the coaching staff blinked a little bit in the sense where I know that Okoro has not been an offensive juggernaut, but he's barely played. And I think that he was rusty in game one after not playing much at the end of the regular season. And in game two, he barely played. And in this game, I thought he actually looked solid. And I think that he was fighting for rebounds. He was wanting to man up again, barely got any time. And it, it goes back to a comment that uh, Tony and Jackson, I think kind of mentioned in, in the episode that we recorded with them, which is he, they both feel like that JB doesn't give a long enough leash for some of these players. And I think mm -hmm. Okoro is one of them. Mm -hmm. Isaac is a very talented player. You picked him high in the draft for a reason and have him start if he's offensively not doing certain things because he's not hitting his outside shot he can do other things on offense mm -hmm. and so tell him to do those other things let Karras come off the bench because you know that he has told you he's more comfortable with that and again trust your players when they're you know when they're talking to you and communicating with you and there's clearly to me some type of communication flaw right now where the coaches are not i feel like the coaches are assessing the talent in front of them instead of discussing what the talent actually wants to do on the floor and how to move forward and and i get it the talent the the team the players did not do well at all in this game i completely i I can see why the coaches could be like, well, we got to try this. I understand that. But when we have heard reports that Karis likes to come off the bench and he's more comfortable with that, then keep him on the bench. He'll still get a ton of minutes. Trust that he enjoys that more than starting. Game four is in the Big Apple again, Adam. 
The Mecca basketball was rowdy to say the least in Game 3. Who on this young team needs to step up, and is this series over if they lose? So I'm going to start with the latter part of the question, which is yes. I believe that if we lose Game 4, there's a good chance that we'll come back and lose Game 5, but I doubt we can win Game 6 and make it a best-of-seven series. So, listen, the Knicks, we said this coming into the playoffs, that out of the three teams we could possibly face, the Knicks were most likely the toughest team because they had a worse home record than road record, and statistically they looked even with us, and if not possibly better than us simply because of that record disparity. We're bad on the road. We had a really good home record, and we were also the best fourth quarter team in the league. And if you watched the games, which we did, a lot of those fourth quarter wins were, they were effort and, and all of that, but they were luck too. You know, they were, um, mm. it could have easily gone the other direction and we could have lost 10 more games this year and we could have been fighting for a playoff position at the bottom. So I think that when this team is really firing on all cylinders, it's hard to not project them into the finals because there's so much talent on this roster and the sky's the limit because we know we have a lot of them locked up for four or five years. When we came into this season, I think we've tried to stay humble in knowing that it's a process. It takes a couple of years usually for guys to figure out how to play together. And they've really... As we said in the Junkyard pod, um, they've gone above expectations so fast that we're all kind of drinking the Kool-Aid a little too quickly and believing that that they're going to achieve greatness this year. So that being said, um, what young guys need to to step up on the team, um, all of them, uh, it was a team effort in losing last night. Even Donovan Mitchell looked awful. Mm-hmm. Yes, he looked great for, you know, a basketball player, but for Donovan Mitchell's abilities, he looked pretty bad. And the team, I think, just needed to come out and be reminded of where they're at. So the youth on this team is is the reason why we're not going to win it all this year. And mm-hmm. the people that need to step up are Garland, Allen, Mobley, Mitchell, all these guys. They, they all need to play a better game than game three. Now, if, you, if they had played more similar to game one or something in between game one and game two, I'd be saying mm-hmm. that the person that needs to step up is Darius. Mm-hmm. Because we saw in game two what happens when he does. Mm. We saw in Game 3 what happens when he can't. And the fact that he mm. was 1 for 12, I think, going into the half. I, everybody can have off nights, but if you're going to be a superstar in this league, you can't have a night like that really ever again. You just can't. You, mm. you need to be more consistent than that. And the fact that he only had three assists... All right, if you're not getting the points up, 10 points, three assists, two rebounds, the Knicks made you look like this was your rookie year. Mm-hmm. So I know that I'm usually the hardest on Garland, 
And um, I think it's because I see the most possibility in him. Mm-hmm. And I think that he can be at a level of Donovan Mitchell one day. But a game like that just reminds us that he has further to go. Mm-hmm. What would you say to this question? Well, to start with your initial response, uh, I think that the Cavs could win a Game 7. They could force it to a Game 7 and win the series. But if they show up kind of how they did in Game 3 or even in Game 1, obviously the chances are really next to nil if they lose this next game. Do you really think they can win three in a row against this? I think that... I think that they could win three in a row against the Knicks because I think even last night, the Knicks were not... In both wins against the Knicks, the Knicks were okay. Like, you said it earlier in your your first question, your answer to the first question, which is that the Knicks have been solid in both of these games. Defensively, they've been really strong, but I think that the Cavs' shooting was putrid in this game, and I I expect them not to have shooting that badly again. And that's kind of my frustration overall with the team right now is kind of what I've been mentioning in this episode is the, the coaching, the cohesion between the coaching and what the players are executing it needs to get on the same page and it it could get on the same page for three games in a row i'm not saying I, i'm saying there is a chance uh as as jim carrey says in dumb and dumber but tell me there's a chance. I, <laughs> yes but i think they could win three in a row against a knicks team who really only has two solid stars and only brunson is really the only one that has showed up remotely in any of these games and he's even had a bad game he he looked pathetic in game two and he only had one good half in game one so i think that the Cavs have the ability to overcome some of that but it's also going to your point the entire team needs to play better everybody just needs to play better and I agree with that they are so young that it's tough to see them winning game seven it's tough to see them forcing a game seven even and I think if there's one player that I would say needs to step up outside of Garland and Mitchell and Allen is Evan Mobley I think that Mobley should be the third best player for the Cavs should be at times in certain quarters look like the best player on the court and he's only been able to show up at in spurts. He's only been able to have some solid rebounding and some good execution on some of his shot selection. But I would say overall, he's had a pretty lackluster playoff series. Yes. And I really want him to... I just would like to see him put a stamp on some of these quarters or some of these possessions. And we're not seeing that at all from him. He's being more of a a role player right now and he's not he is he is the future of this franchise and i know he's super young he's very very young but i would put the onus on him a little bit to step up more to make the knicks feel his presence yeah evan mobley um i think i'm willing to give him a little more 
time, uh, not compared to you, obviously, I'm just saying in my head, I'm, I'm willing to give him more time because this is his sophomore year. He mm-hmm. is his first time in the playoffs. And I think that uh, the Knicks have done a really good job of identifying, okay, we probably can't stop Mitchell and we probably can't stop Garland. So we'll stop Mobley. There's got to be a third person that we mm-hmm. stop. And the fact that um, he's coming in and really underperforming from his regular season stats, he's shooting 44% from the field. And he's averaging just 10 points a game. Um, so that's six minute, that's six points under uh, what he was giving uh, in the regular season out there. And then, um, and I just have to kind of point out that the other person that is also struggling um, to kind of step up as a, as a secondary option is Allen. Really, both of mm-hmm. our guys underneath are are not contributing as much as I expected in this series. And with Allen, I don't necessarily see it being his fault. I don't really see a lot of plays being run through him at all. He's just getting garbage buckets and um, mm-hmm. scrapping for the ball as much as he can. But they're not really running any offense through him, which I feel like running some offense through Allen might – wear out some of the people underneath a little bit more. Um, and and then maybe by the end of the game, you know, the Cavs will have a little more legs than the Knicks. But I agree with you that they, they have a chance to, if they, if they win game five, then they could possibly, so th- that's the thing. I have a hard time believing that they can win three in a row, simply because right now they're mm-hmm. six and two against the Knicks this year. So they really, yeah, yeah. the Knicks, for whatever reason, just have our number and don't seem to, it, it's hard for me to believe that we can win more than two in a row against them. So we mm-hmm. really have to get game four and then game five, that would be great. I think we'd probably lose game six and then game seven, it's all or nothing. But. Yeah. I can see that. I totally agree. It's just, I think that, to me, I think that the Knicks have not, um, I think there's a level of the Cavs have really underperformed in this yes. series where the Knicks have performed at what the Knicks are. and But at okay. the same time, I totally agree with your point, which is they seem to have our number, which yeah. is it's tough to get over that. Yeah. No, fair point. The final seconds. We talked about Levert struggling in game three. Do you see Okoro moving back into the starting lineup? Tough call. You know, if I was JB, I would consider it. But um, I'm not JB. And it seems like JB doesn't really like Isaac Okoro very much. I mean, (laughs) probably likes him as a person just fine. But the start of the year when the Cavs floated a big article through Cleveland.com that it was Okoro's time and he'd practiced his shot and we could all look forward to him being in the starting lineup. JB went, nah, no, I'm going to start Karras. Um, He seems to want to play around at that position and doesn't want to give Okuro the time there the way that he did in his rookie year. And to start the playoffs, Okuro had a knee issue, and we worried that that would stop him from getting out there. I've wondered if he's still having some issues with the knee, and they're being cautious with him. Um, game two, I was surprised he only played three minutes. But I assumed that had more to do with injury. But the fact that they played so poorly in game three and he only had 12 minutes, 
and much of that came sporadically and mostly when it didn't matter. Um, I don't know. He's, he's one of those players that I'm very unsure of how JB sees him being used on this team. And that's kind of scary because we've gone through 80 plus games. Shouldn't we know by now how this player should be used? Um, you know, I thought game one was, was unfortunate because it seemed like they came out and decided to surprise the Knicks by running some offense through Okuro to start. And that's not, you know, fair to Isaac, a guy that is not really sure of his shot on most nights, let alone game one of the playoffs. You know, they're having him shoot corner threes. Um, and that's just something that he can do when the game is in hand, not when it's all on him. So I know he had a big shot at the end of the year, and that helps, obviously, that, that will help his confidence level over time. But the fact that he went one for six in game one and then got three minutes in game two, he's just not seeing enough time and being given enough opportunity to feel like he's believed in um, for him to really go out there and contribute. I think Isaac Okoro is a guy that needs to be propped up um, if he if if he loses some of that confidence, you can really see it. He wears it out there on the court, and I think that this was the worst time for JB to make him feel unsure about himself. So I would say I'd like to see him start more, but I don't know if JB believes in him. Yeah, those are all fair points. I think that Okoro deserves the start in my mind because I think that he allows the team to continue what JB loves, which is to have an identity on defense. Mm -hmm. I think he does struggle offensively, but it's to your point, which is they tell him to sit in the, the corner and shoot threes, but he can contribute in other ways. So I would like to see them have him bring the ball up at times. We know that Brunson is the worst defender on the Knicks team, and it would be awesome to see just a Coro go at Brunson more and and instead we're just seeing Levert come in and do a similar thing but the it, it, he's just getting that chance we're essentially seeing that Levert is getting the chance because there is a trust issue there where JB doesn't really trust everything that Coro is doing on the offensive side of the ball which is frustrating because again to your point You've, you've coached Okoro longer than you have Levert. So what's the, what is the issue here? Is it that Okoro doesn't have the confidence and he's just not there yet? Or is that you're not enabling him with the confidence to be there? And I think that it's more of you're, you're yanking him off the floor every five minutes you're you're just his minutes are so up and down i don't expect him to have any type of consistent flow as to what the what he's supposed to do on the court and he is also a very young player compared to lavert so he's gonna play more up and down when you are giving him up and down minutes mm -hmm. so i think that you also have him start because as we mentioned at the top of the pod lavert is better he feels more comfortable coming off the bench. So Levert could still get more minutes, but Okoro is starting. We've That's yeah. not out of the realm of thinking. That happens with the Knicks right now with Robinson starts, but Hartenstein has 
he's been getting more minutes than Robinson in some of these games. Mm. So that would be fine as well. Just let the kid play, let him have some stability, and if you're having issues offensively, it's really not on Okoro. It's on the fact that you're not getting Garland and Mitchell and Mobley more involved. So why don't you work on that and let Isaac contribute in some capacity? Thank you for listening to the Cavaliers Basketball Club podcast. Let's go Cavs!